Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today I've got Dr. Mark Muska in studio, which I'm looking forward to. Ask the Professor. Mark is the Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies right here at the University of Northwestern. And virtually any question you ask, he'll do his very best to answer. So send him over. You can text your questions to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Mark, welcome. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, great. So I want to ask you, first of all, what are we to learn from the road to Emmaus? I don't know if the road is going to teach us much. You know, it's just dirt, probably had some mud in it <laughs> and everything. All right. But there's a passage in the Bible where uh, Jesus comes up and starts talking with a couple of his disciples that are on that road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And we were just looking it up on the map just to be sure. Emmaus mm-hmm. was about seven miles west of Jerusalem in Judea. And Jesus interacts with them. Very powerful story, and it was indicative of what was happening uh, immediately after his resurrection, that there was confusion, wonder, fear, a lot of things going on, even with Jesus' disciples. I mean, there was a buzz going on, for right. sure. Right. Now, this is basically Sunday night, isn't it? Probably. <laughs> Sunday yeah, afternoon, most... Sunday evening, yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, Sunday so... afternoon, on the road. and Because remember, it says that the women went to the tomb early in right. the morning on the first day of the week. So... <laughs> Sunrise, and pr- probably Luke, 6, 7 o'clock. Yeah, in Luke 24, they're getting, um, inst- uh, we're getting instructions that he's going to have dinner with them that night. I don't know what time they eat dinner, but mm-hmm. I usually eat around 5 if I can you know, week- on weekends. Remember around the world, though, supper sometimes <laughs> is 8 in the evening, I know. you know. That's it, true. it can really vary quite a bit. Yeah, so he appears to them on the road. And he kind of draws out with the questions because mm-hmm. they're saying, where have you been? Mm-hmm. And, uh, everyone's talking about these things. And he says, what things? Mm-hmm. So you say he's just drawing them out. Right. Okay. And you, you overlooked an important fact is that Luke tells us that these two are walking on the road and uh, Jesus uh, approached them. And it says so in verse 16 of chapter 24, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So that tells you a couple of things. If their eyes wouldn't have been prevented, they would have seen who he was. And they don't know who he is because they're, they're being shielded from that right now. So they're just talking with another guy that's come up with them on the road. They're, they're, they don't know who he right. is. Right. But at the mealtime, they broke bread and, and blessed the meal and their eyes were open They and they recognized him and then he vanished. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm just trying to figure out the timing of all this matter of probably a few hours you know so okay. seven miles is a pretty good hike that's a good that's if, a if nice anybody's hike. done that that probably took them a couple hours maybe three mm-hmm. it, it depends on whether they're power walking or just moseying like mm-hmm. they do in texas they mosey and that takes a little while to mosey yeah. especially so, if you've got sandals on right and yeah. it's dirty and everything and, and you're talking stuff and you're talking when people talk sometimes they're barely moving because yeah. they're thinking more about what they're saying than what they're doing so mm-hmm. yeah matter of a few hours probably mm-hmm so they must have been quite shocked to oh, have, man. 
had that yeah. experience. And I don't know if that was the result of uh, something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. I think I brought that up mm-hmm. in the green room, green room before we started. But I know that there were prophecies related to Jesus that, that he would uh, be having uh, many appearances and eyewitness appearances, of course. And mm-hmm. uh, this is certainly one of those where these two guys said unequivocally, we saw Jesus. Well, I love what they say in verse 32, after Jesus disappears. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scripture to us? So that's really How awesome cool. is that? Yeah. Can you imagine? Because earlier Luke tells us when he's eating dinner with them, well, he he sort of chastises them because they don't know what's going on. They're saying, okay, this, we thought he was a Messiah, but he gets killed and now there's rumors that the tomb's empty, and people have seen him, and we don't know what to think. And Jesus reprimands him. In uh, verse 25, he says, He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then verse 27, Can you imagine, Bill? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them, to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Man, talk about a Bible lesson to have everything about him explained mm-hmm. to them. Wouldn't you love to have been a little, you know, a chipmunk on the road walking with them all, listening to that? That would have been special mm-hmm. to hear that. And in, in the Luke passage, Mark, it talks about uh, um, the two guys who were on the road. They only name one of them, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And the other one, they don't, they don't identify him. And I, I wonder why. Could name one, why not the other? Well, it seems like one answers Jesus. You know, he's, they're talking with each other, and then Jesus asks, what are these words you're exchanging with one another, and why are you walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him. So mm-hmm. okay. the other guy maybe just stayed in the background. Yeah. Interesting about uh, in, bi- in biblical times, uh, when you got a name, you were... You were Simon, son of Jonah, mm-hmm. or you were Aaron the Levite, or you were Simon the Tanner. Um, no, not a lot of last names in biblical days were there. Well, that was kind of their surname. Okay, and we do this. Uh, at least the Scandinavians do that, where they've got Olson, that's Oli's son, and Johnson and uh, Jefferson, mm-hmm. and this kind of thing. So that's very close to the yeah. same kind of. I thing. I think that's really sweet. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we were calling, you know. Simon, son of Jonah. Yeah. Identifying with mm-hmm. Well, it, it connects you with your family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, we live in a very individualistic world now. Yeah, you may, you may be right there. Well, don't we? I mean, yeah. back in these days, your resume was built upon your family heritage, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suppose if you had an uncle you weren't too proud of, you left him off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. Okay. Um, again, sure. questions for Mark, 877-933-2484. Uh, this is something I heard from a pastor 35 years ago, probably, Mark, and mm-hmm. it was that he made the statement that uh, faith is a decision-making process based on the Word of God, uh, irregardless of your emotion. Mm-hmm. And I remembered that all these years because I've, I know what it means over the years more and more when you have discussions with people that say, you know, I got saved 20 years ago, but I just don't feel that God loves me. Yeah. I don't feel forgiven. Mm-hmm. And I think, ah, oh, now I get it. Because feelings have nothing to do with it. I don't know about nothing, but they, they can they can be a warning. Okay. If there's just a cool coolness toward God, it might be time to think about that a little bit, what's going on. But I agree with you that they aren't the basis of our relationship with God. 
uh, we live in a, a world that has accentuated emotion in the last few decades. And that's not all bad because in the church, especially in the 20th century, sometimes we almost bled emotion out of our relationship with God. It was strictly, you know, official and mm-hmm. requirements and duties and all that kind of thing. And and that takes the emotion right out of our relationship with God. Uh, it's meant to be whole so that we we relate to God. He is our friend, and that's intellectual. We understand that, and we learn more about that. It is emotional. It's an affection and and care, and it's also willful. We're choosing mm-hmm. to believe in him. Yeah. So it's all of that. So, yeah. you know, the, you know how it is, Bill, that, that there's a pendulum and it swings back and forth. And so maybe things have swung a little far in the direction of overly emphasizing feelings today. Well, um, I, I agree with everything you've said. Yeah. Uh, it's and, personal, it's passionate, it's emotional. Uh, that's your relationship with God. But when mm-hmm. it comes to uh, God's word and the promises on which we stand, those are not, in my opinion, as subject to emotions because that's settled what was that word you used in the grade room? Settled what? Yeah, well, th- th- we, I-, I like to encourage my students to, uh, to uh, decide or to uh, believe God with a settled faith that, or uh, to depend on him. I'm, I'm really not uh, real crazy about using the, the, uh, the word faith anymore, Bill, because it's been overused. People talk about my faith is this and my faith is that. And well, what the heck is that? There's a lot of Christian euphemisms that we use. So I like using the word depend. Faith means if you believe somebody, you trust them, you depend on them for something. You rely on them for something. So when we hear the gospel, we're called to put our faith in it in the sense that we depend on it being true. That if Jesus Christ did not die to pay the penalty of our sins and give us peace with God... We're in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to depend on that mm, to like be that. true. It's and I liked what you said earlier about it. It's like a high stakes poker game. I know we don't like talking about gambling, but it's a high stakes poker game where we're betting our life on Jesus being who He said He was and doing for us what He said He did. Mm-hmm. That He died as a ransom for many. That yeah. this this is this is the way our sin is removed and our alienation from God is taken away. So. Uh, we got to depend on that. But it isn't always... Uh, the, the reason I like the idea of settled faith is some people get into this notion that you have to have complete faith in that. You can't have any questions. You've got to have t- total faith in God and in the gospel if you're going to be saved at all. And I think that's overdoing it too because there's always a place for doubts or questions mm-hmm. with certain things in in your faith, uh, in your in your trust in God. But when you decide to believe the gospel. It's a settled thing. You settle it and you say, okay, I may not be able to answer all the questions I have, whether the Bible's completely reliable, whether this or that is true or not, but I'm deciding. I'm going to believe this and I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. It, uh, this is what I'm committing myself to, mm. that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of my sin and give me peace with God and that I'm not going back there anymore. Mm. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to keep on hassling with that. But it may take me the rest of my life to resolve a lot of the questions I have about all that. That's just natural. So uh, to say you have a complete faith, uh, that uh, I I get uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with that kind of language being used. Yeah, repeat what you said in the green room about Billy Graham. Yeah, well, the story goes on. I think this is true uh, that I've heard this a couple different times that when early in his ministry, he had significant questions about the Bible's truthfulness. 
you got to remember that was really under attack in the first part of the 20th century and even into the 19th century. And so uh, this dogged him. He had these questions and he had these doubts. But uh, as the story goes, uh, he finally settled it where uh, I've, uh, the way I heard the story was is that he went into a park and put his Bible on a, a park bench and knelt before the park bench and the Bible and just said to God, I'll never be able to answer all the questions I have about this book. But from today on, I'm teaching it as your word, Lord, and I'm not going back. You know, he settled it. With I, that. I love that. I love settled faith. Yeah. Love, love so, he didn't have to constantly be, you know, harangued with all of these questions and doubts in his mind. And I'm sure he had plenty of questions after that. But he saw he sought to resolve them the best mm-hmm. he could. It's not like you just leave them there. But don't doesn't it true that the older that you get as a Christian, so, sometimes you have the more questions you have oh, because yeah. there's a lot of stuff. Uh, I tease my students that so questions and doubts are like dandelions in your yard that you answer three of them. And then 10 more are there the next day, and you get those 10, and then there's 32 the next day. And it mm-hmm. just, uh, answering things leads to more uh, questions mm-hmm. and uh, concerns that you have. So uh, I think uh, we uh, we do well to, to live with that and uh, trust God, though, for what we have committed ourselves to. Mm-hmm. Mark Mosca is my guest. Ask the Professor is the segment, so let me know what your questions are. Text them over to 877-933-2484. If you like email, you can email bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com or 877-933-2484. the walk-up music for Dr. Mark Muska. That's what he requested. Boy, do I love that song. It's a beauty. That is a beaut. All right, right before break, we were talking about, I think you made some high-stakes gambling reference, and I I can only quote one line from Pascal. (laughs) Okay. And this is the one I use often when I'm doing, uh, having discussions with people. I'll say, this is from Ponce's, where he said, we're all making a high-stakes life commitment to a particular faith view and we're betting our eternal destiny on it. Exactly so right. I'll sometimes say, well, what is what is your faith view that you you are betting your destiny on? Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. I like putting it in the negative. If Jesus' death on the cross doesn't forgive me, I'm toast. I have no hope before God. Right. He will condemn me, and I will be separated from him. Mm-hmm. Only Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can yeah. save. I love that he says that in Mark chapter 2 when he heals the paralytic. He says... But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he says to the man, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. Mm -hmm. He's the one with the authority to forgive sin. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Text your questions over 877-933-2484. David wants to know, can you please explain regeneration as totally a work of God? Yeah, that's a good uh, uh, theological question. Uh, We have a ton of really descriptive words that we use theologically to describe what happens to us when we do, in fact, put our faith in the gospel and become a follower of Jesus. There's about a dozen of them. 
And uh, regeneration is one of these. And uh, the way that uh, many Christians think of regeneration, they go to uh, the uh, John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and he gets into this idea of unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it two different ways. And so uh, regeneration is a fancy theological word for this imagery of being born again. You can even hear it in the word. What, is, what do you do if you generate something? You create it, right? Mm-hmm. You generate it. So if you regenerate something, it's recreated. So you could translate that word recreation, regeneration. And this is the birth, the spiritual birth that takes place in us when we put our faith in the gospel. And Jesus, he's explicit about this. So that this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to... Uh, to give us this new life in Christ. And we've talked about this many times before that I love it, Bill, because the Christian faith isn't just some guidebook to being a better guy. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we're uh, 17 tips on how to live a more moral life. Uh, we do talk about living a moral life, but Christianity, it's a whole new ball game. Mm-hmm. When we put our faith in the gospel, we are recreated, God says that we have a whole new life that begins in us. And this, to answer the question from David, it is from uh, from the Holy Spirit that he uh, talks about this. I love John 3, 8. He's talking to Nicodemus here, and <laughs> Nicodemus is having trouble uh, understanding this. And in verse 7, he says to Nicodemus, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. But listen to the imagery he uses. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it came from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he's saying, have you ever seen the wind? And you have to answer, nope. You see the effect of the wind. The leaves rustle. Mm-hmm. The trees bend. So you don't see the wind. You see the effect of the wind. And he's saying, same thing with the Spirit. You don't see the Spirit. He works secretly, and we don't see him, but we see his effect. Mm -hmm. And the effect is that we have a whole new life that's given to us. It may help you, David, with this. I don't know what kind of questions you have about it, but I like to pair up regeneration with another theological word that we use called conversion. And regeneration, that's the work of God to recreate this new spiritual life in us. Conversion describes what we do in response to the gospel. And so we usually associate conversion with two words, faith and repentance. What do we do in response to the gospel when we hear it? We depend on it being true, faith, and we repent. We turn from our sin and from all the other ways we thought that we might be right with God some way. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, man, you know, if I just live a good life, God will let me into heaven. Or if he knows I tried the hardest, uh, he'll let me into heaven. Uh-uh doesn't work. When you hear the gospel and the fact you can't do beans to save yourself, there's got to be a change of mind there. The word Mm -hmm. repentance literally means to change your mind about something. And you do that when you put your faith in the gospel, you repent. All of that is described as conversion. So God's work, regeneration, are part of that conversion, and they both happen if not simultaneously, then very much close to one another. In fact, that's even a question that we get into among Christians. Which one comes first, regeneration or conversion? And we're not going to settle that this afternoon. Mm-hmm. There's, there's camps on both yeah. sides of that. But to God be the glory, he does it in our lives. 
Absolutely. I, I mean, how much did you know about the Bible when you got saved? A little bit, but not a much. I, I didn't know very much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, for you and me, see, we came, you came from a non-Christian background, didn't you? Or mm, no. church background? Yeah, yeah, I was very, very church background. Well, I had a church background, but I hated it, and I didn't understand anything about it. Okay. And so I was virtually a non-Christian until I was 19. So okay. this thing of regeneration is real clear for me. I know what I was B.C., <laughs> before putting my faith in the gospel. Completely changed. Okay. God turned my life upside down, and he does that to a lot of people that come to faith to Christ as adults. With kids that have been hearing the gospel all their life, I mean, for crying out loud, they kneel down with their mom next to their bed when they're three and ask Jesus into right. their heart. Right. When they're eight, they're at camp, and right. the last night they throw the twig in the fire to show right. that right. they're believing God. I mean, they've always said yes to God. And so to have that real change of regeneration, sometimes they can't really point to anything that mm-hmm. was really dramatic. And mm-hmm. so they start having doubts. Well, am I really born again? And that, and my answer to that is, okay, tell me right now, are you dependent on Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and peace with God? Yeah, well, you're born again. Mm-hmm. It might not have been some spectacular event that you cherish like a person like I do. Mm-hmm. And how critical to start getting involved in God's Word and start to study yep. the Word. There's so many people that have that experience, but then they mm-hmm. do nothing with it. Yeah. But what, I, what do you say to those people? Well, it's it's a matter of the, the what the next steps are for us once we put our faith in the gospel and trust Jesus to take away our sin. A Bible talks about us being baby Christians at that point, that we're considered babes. Peter uses that language, so does Paul. Mm-hmm. And then the goal is to become mature in Christ. And so what we do is we grow, just like babies grow to be adults someday. We're called to grow. And this is something, this is one of the means we do this. We read God's Word to hear from Him. We talk to Him uh, to uh, communicate with Him. And that uh, that's the process of growth that takes place. But just like with a baby and an adult, it isn't overnight. It takes years, decades for mm-hmm. us to mature in Christ. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children yep. in regards to evil. Be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Mm-hmm. At First Peter uh, chapter 2, he says, uh, like newborn babes, long the pure milk of God's word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So mm-hmm. it's exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. We get into God's word because we want to know more and we want to grow as uh, brand new Christians. Mm-hmm. Great questions coming in. Uh, send them over to 877-933-2484. That's the text. If you want to email me, you can do that also. My email is bill at myfaithradio.com. If you have a little bit of a longer question for Dr. Mark Muska, he's my guest in studio. We call this Ask the Professor, and he's a professor right here of uh, theology at the University of Northwestern. So send over any questions you have, and he'll do his very best job to answer them. 877-933-2484. Be back in a minute.
just joined us dr mark muska today we call this ask the professor and any question you have for mark let me know 877-933-2484 some great questions coming in here's one mark yeah when reading uh the healing miracles in the in the in the bible what am i supposed to learn from them in daily life today yeah that's a really good question it's kind of general but it's really a good question, and honestly, it, there's some landmines there, Bill, I that bet we, we have to be careful about. Uh, at its base, we can learn that uh, we depend on God for everything, for our salvation, for this regeneration and being born of the Spirit. But we also are uh, uh, encouraged to commit everything to Him. And that includes our physical health as well. So there is uh, nothing wrong at all with uh, learning from this that God uh, still heals today. And uh, where it gets controversial is when Paul gets into the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And one of the gifts of the Spirit that he lists, he calls it the gifts of healings. And notice I used the S on both those words, gifts of healings, not a gift of healing, but gifts of healings. And so evidently there were people in the church that God had gifted to be able to uh, perform healings. And we see this in the New Testament. Uh, people are raised from the dead. Uh, people who have really nasty stuff like leprosy are healed. Uh, then uh, someone who just had a fever, uh, that, that's healed as well. So it doesn't have to be big, you know, headline-grabbing kind of healings. It can be just about anything. So I like to say to people that you, you are sick or somebody you care about is sick, pray about it and talk to God about it. Uh, Jesus promises to his disciples, at least, that he's he'll, he will answer their prayers. Now, where it gets controversial is when we cross a line. I, I think there's two things. I, I, I don't want to uh, rag on my Pentecostal friends and brothers and sisters in the faith, and I don't want to rag on the non-Pentecostal ones, but both of them can get in trouble if they're not uh, careful, in my opinion, mm-hmm. that many uh, Pentecostals will see these promises in the Bible and uh, they will just assume that God is against all sickness because it's from sin and evil and he wants to heal it all. And so we need to pray for everybody to be healed who is sick, no matter what. And if someone isn't healed as a result of that, there's only two things. Number one, the person doesn't have enough faith to believe that he's going to be healed. Or secondly, there's some sin in his life that's a barrier between him and God, and so God's not going to heal him. And to me, that is just so inappropriate because a person's already sick, and now you're putting this guilt trip on them about, well, you got sin in your life or you just don't believe God. Uh, that we have to be careful of. To what I say to my friends is that uh, this, this, uh, the, when the prayer is not answered, it may be that God has other plans in mind with what he's doing. And I go to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed that God would take the cup away from him, but remember how he ended it. Yet not my will, but mm-hmm. yours be done. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good thing to pray, that sometimes God's plans and purposes that he doesn't always give us a peek at, he doesn't let us know what they are, are that he doesn't heal in some situations. We just 
we're just left with that. We have to conclude that, that something about his will is being accomplished, and so he is not going to heal in these circumstances. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I'm trying to say this respectfully, Bill, because I love it that people take it seriously, and the Pentecostal tradition in particular, they take it seriously that God heals people. And there's wonderful miracles that they testify to of gift, uh, of healings taking place. But then my non-Pentecostal friends, they hear this about, you know, sometimes presuming that God's just going to heal everything. So then their faith really isn't great when it comes to believing God that he's going to heal if they pray. And so uh, they're praying, oh, yeah, God, if you want to, and if it's your will and all this kind of stuff. But it isn't really a prayer of confidence and faith in God. I respect that among people who pray, and they really expect God to do something. Mm-hmm. And they're not just giving it lip service. Oh, well, God, you know, we're supposed to pray for healing here, but I, you know, if I'm really honest, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, sometimes people on the other side of this fall into that type of skepticism and mm-hmm. pessimism, and that's wrong too. I wonder how many things that we miss out on that God wants to bless us with because we're just kind of, nah, I really Mm -hmm. don't believe it, that he's going to do it. So can we find a middle ground in there to really go to God when we have prayer of and requests and people who are sick, sometimes at the point of death, but to always defer to God's will and his purposes in this. We would love to see this person healed, not go through all this, Mm -hmm. but yet... God does have plans and purposes, and he is not obliged to tell us what those are. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to trust him that he knows what he's doing and yeah. he still loves us. We're accountable to him. He's not accountable to us, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But in James chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because right. the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. So it's almost like you're walking on eggshells. Am I, mm-hmm. am I believing with no doubt? Well, again, that gets back to this total faith thing. That's, yeah. Yeah. And so that we we pray, and that is the goal, that is the ideal, to pray without doubt. But that, I'll confess it in my life, I can't say that I've always prayed that way when it comes to some healing situation that I'm in, especially when you see it just deteriorate and it seems to be unstoppable. Uh, this happened to a, f- a family member, extremely good, athletic, mm-hmm. and got this debilitative disease, ended up killing him in about a year. And people prayed for him. They they anointed him with oil. They had all kinds of things that the Bible tells us to do. And they thought, because he was in such good health, that maybe he could either delay this or overcome it. And he couldn't. It, it, it killed him. Mm-hmm. And so is that because people prayed and they still had doubts? Boy, I'm not going to put that guilt trip on anybody. That's something for God to discern. So yeah. the ideal is to pray and to trust God that he is going to work. Does that mean he's going to heal this guy now and he's going to live longer? Or I like the way some people put it. There's some sense to this. Or is he going to heal him by taking him home and putting him out of his misery of mm-hmm. being sick like this? And so he goes to be with Jesus and he's he's restored. He's not sick anymore. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you, can you see how tricky this is? You can, you, you can alienate people in a hurry because these are big time issues that people really suffer over when people they love uh, are are sick and how are we supposed to pray mm-hmm. what are you supposed to learn from yeah. that what if you have a you know like a, fer- a infertility issue and you're you're going through the the process of yeah. trying to get pregnant and now you're you're waiting for that that call that mm-hmm. that test yep is it going to happen yep. and you pray hourly 
daily yep. by minute, yep. right? Yep. And and you have to say, God's will be done, right? That's, I think that's the only recourse we have is to say, I'm not aware of everything going on here. Yeah. So, but you want to bring a child into the world. Yeah. What could be more beautiful, right? Right. right. Why would there be a hesitation from God on that in that department? But God may have other plans for you. I get it. Yeah. yeah. It's um, not exactly satisfying, is it? No, it's it's not. Yeah. It's not super satisfying. Yep. And I've lost my train of thought. So. That's okay. Yeah. Happens to me all. But the I had time. Like three more things I wanted to ask you regarding this. <laughs> Um, because you don't want, you you don't want to walk around on eggshells thinking I got to make sure my faith has zero doubt in it. Yeah. So you start saying things and I, I've experienced where a a guy was facing death and er, he was, everyone was told that he wasn't going to die. And then if you were going to come into the house and make a gesture towards him that this might be the end and I came to say goodbye, you weren't allowed in. Right. Because he's not dying. Right. And that... That can take you places you probably don't want to go. Yeah, I know. I know. So, <clears throat> All right. Here's another question. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the professor. Questions can be texted to 877-933-2484, or you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. What about Old Testament believers? Where do they go at death? Abraham's bosom? Yeah, that's a good question. A question comes out of uh, Luke 16, where Jesus tells this parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And so he's speculating, is this the place that, that these Old Testament believers, a person like Moses or, or David, some of these that loved God, followed him, observed the law, did what they were expected to do as Old Testament believers in God. Uh, where are they? The best term I like to use for this, Bill, is to, it's not used in the scripture, but it's a theological word. I call it the place of the dead mm-hmm. that they went to. And there's many names for this in the, the Old Testament and New Testament. Gehenna, Hades, uh, Hell, Sheol, yeah. uh, these, uh, they dis- are descriptive. The ancient mindset, they saw that the, all the dead, when they died, they would go to this nether world under the earth. And this is where they, their souls would be. And the Bible doesn't exactly endorse that, but it doesn't refute it either. And so presumably these Old Testament people, all of them, before Christ died on the cross, they went to this place of the dead. And if we can depend on Jesus to be actually describing what that place of the dead is in this parable, which is a big question— when he puts it in a parable like this, it might be just an illustrative story who, who's playing on their beliefs already to teach them a story about uh, receiving him. And so we have to be careful about taking teaching from these parables uh, and just saying, oh, this is fact. Jesus says that there were these two places uh, in the in the nether world. Uh, let me just read a little bit of it. It says, Lazarus, uh, there was a rich man, uh, he... Uh, lived in splendor every day, a poor name, man named Lazarus. And it says the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham and Lazarus. So he seems to be describing two different places in this place of the dead. Abraham's bosom, where he is being comforted, the, the, 
poor man, Lazarus, who died, and then this place of torment, because he says to Lazarus, if you could just take your finger and dip it in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this place. So he's suffering there, and Lazarus is being comforted in this place of the dead. So I, the way I leave it, Bill, is to say this is consistent with the picture that we get of the netherworld, the place of the dead, in Old Testament terms. And now we have, because of what Jesus has done, this has changed now, where we no longer have to talk about this netherworld place where those who die in faith, who trust Jesus, uh, right from the beginning, as Jesus was dying, he said to the guy on the cross with him, today you're going to be in paradise with me. So there's there's a change that takes place once Jesus dies on the cross. Mm-hmm. I thought of one of my other questions from our previous oh, okay. subject, and that was uh, the... The, the healing stuff. Yeah, the healing stuff. Okay. Do we sometimes obligate God to act, and then when he doesn't, according to what we would like, we kind of have an attitude towards him? Well, that that's the danger that, of yeah. becoming presumptive to mm-hmm. say uh, we almost treat God like a genie in the bottle, mm-hmm. where he promises to heal and all this. And so, okay, you promised you would, so here, go. Go get him here, genie. And, and heal them. And uh, anybody who thinks about that realizes the foolishness of taking that line of thought. Uh, he is God. He is the one who calls the shots and not us. So we can't command God like we command some dancing bear right. to perform for us. Which, by the way, is very, very entertaining, the dancing bear Dancing thing. bear? Okay. Yeah, I, I think so. I've only heard yeah. <laughs> I love Psalm 115, verse 3, Mark. It says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Yeah. That's really good. God has his counsels. He has his plans and his promises, and he's going to execute those. Sometimes we can get it. You know, we see what he's doing, and we're going, okay, that, this is fantastic. Look mm-hmm. what God is doing. And sometimes we're just completely left in the dark. And he, I like what you said earlier, he is under no obligation to explain himself no. to us. Uh, that uh, Paul, very dark passage in Romans 9, people scratch their head about that, but uh, he says, he rebukes the Romans, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? The created thing doesn't say to the creator, why'd you make me this way? Right. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have to defer to who God is and who we are. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, I'm going to have Mark explain the parable of the unjust steward. That should be interesting. That's out of Luke 16. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. You can text questions at is my guest. Thank you for all the great questions. I love all the questions that have come in. People are thinking. They're thinking. They always think. So Mm -hmm. the question that came in uh, from Ginny and Gary is, can Mark explain Luke 16 verses 1 to 13? 
the parable of the unjust steward. Yeah, uh, this is kind of the, the Luke 16 show. We were just in there with Lazarus. <laughs> and and now, earlier in the passages, uh, Jesus is uh, teaching here uh, about the kingdom and the way things work, and he teaches this parable. And I don't know, do you think I should just read it, Bill? Because, yeah. Because... Uh, uh, it says, verse 1 here, it says, Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. This manager is reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you no longer can be manager. The manager said to himself, or steward said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. And he goes, ding, the light bulb goes on, or the candle. I know what I shall do. So when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And what the guy does, he manages the master's uh, uh, affairs. Mm -hmm. He goes and finds the manager's debtors, the people who owe the manager, and he cuts them a deal. He says, how much do you owe the master? And the guy tells him, and he says, here, I'll cut that in half. And he has the power to do that as the steward. And he sends the guys away, cutting their, their, uh, their debt. And the uh, verse 8 is the one that's really tough to, to explain. His master finds out what he's doing, and it says, And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. And now here's the lesson. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relationship to their own kind than the sons of light. And he says, Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of the unrighteous, so that when it fails, they'll receive you into eternal dwellings. What Jesus is teaching there is this guy knew he only had so much time left to be able to prepare his place in the next place he would work. He's losing his job with this guy. So what does he want to do? He wants to get hired by somebody else. How best to do that than to cut him a deal with their debt to his master? Can't you just see him knocking on their door a day or two later after he loses his management saying, hey, you know, I'm out of work. Can you need somebody? Mm -hmm. Remember, I cut you a deal. Uh, this is called the favor system. I did a favor for you. I cut your debt. I could use a favor from you. Can you hire me mm -hmm. now? And the whole point of this is that Jesus is making is the steward, the manager, he realizes he's got to act quick. He's only going to be the manager so much longer. And so he takes advantage of the present to prepare his place next place mm -hmm. in the future. And does that remind you of anything? So Jesus is say, warning them, saying, you only got so much time here to respond to me. I love how he says it in John at the end of Jesus' public ministry. He said, the light is among you, but the light is going away. So believe while you have the light, because in the darkness, you won't be able to see. The clock is ticking. You only have so much time to respond to me and prepare your place in the, the kingdom, the next place you're going to be. Where is that verse in John? It's in John 12, I believe. It's right when Jesus Jesus gives his final words to in his public ministry. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm only comfortable with pauses with Mark Mosca yeah, in the studio. I'm I'm looking at it on John chapter twelve here. Uh, this is uh, what uh, Jesus says, verse thirty five. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. 
while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And then John says right after that, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from him. Wow. His public ministry is over. That's so powerful. I that's why that's I use this verse. on you guys with the studio. You got the lights out all the time. I know so I turn the lights on. I know. You're supposed to be sons of light. Uh, but uh. seriously, though, but this <laughs> this is the case here with the unrighteous steward. We should learn from him. Even he's a crook. Can't you just see the master learning what this guy's doing and just kind of shaking his head, but smiling too, to uh-huh. say, I got to get rid of you. You know, you're cheating me again <laughs> here. But he admires it because the guy's thinking of his future. He's acting while he still has the chance to act with this stewardship. And so I don't think Jesus is applauding cheating. He's applauding shrewdness here. Mm and perception of your situation to say, take advantage of the time you have now to respond to me, because it's not going to last. Mm. So here's a conversation a uh, listener had with a sister, and it mm-hmm. re- was uh, regarding a nine-year-old girl that was brought up in a Mormon family mm-hmm. and dying of a disease that was not able to be cured. And when she died, her question is because she never got to hear about Jesus, because she was brought up in the Mormon faith, she never had a chance to make it to heaven. So my sister said she finds that very hard to understand how God can throw children like that away when they have never really had a chance. I didn't know what to say to her. I had no answer for her. Uh, Boy, you know, I listened to that, Bill, and it's heartbreaking to hear of a kid that dies like this. Oh, yeah. And uh, apparently, from all appearances, not a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I would I would gently uh, encourage this person to be careful about the assumptions they make about this situation, about God throwing this person away. You don't know many things about what happened here, and we aren't meant to know. Again, this is in the counsels of God. There are a dozen different ways that God can reach people, even in a circumstance like this, just with the Mormon church. Now, I am not a Mormon, and I'm not going to endorse the Mormon church, but there are testimonies of many people who have come to faith in Christ and the true gospel of Jesus Christ through their membership in the Mormon church, that God finds a way for them to hear the, the true gospel and I believe we're going to spend eternity with them in heaven, even though they've associated with a teaching that on the surface, is wrong about Jesus. And so we don't know what this little girl heard about Jesus. We don't know how she responded in her heart. Mm-hmm. There's there's a dozen different possibilities for this child. Now, I just, I refuse to conclude that somehow this child has been cast away by God and has no hope because she never heard the true gospel of Jesus. Uh, haven't we talked about this before? Yes, we have. I'm an eternal optimist. I hope we see everybody in heaven that somehow even the worst of the sinners and rebellious and hateful toward God through their entire life, when they're sitting in a coma for the last half hour of their life, that somehow God reaches them with what they heard prior to this about the gospel, and in a half-conscious state, they put their faith in the gospel, and they end up in heaven. It's like like driftwood. They wash up on the shores of heaven. Mm-hmm. They barely made it. How, how, are, how are we to presume that we know all these things? So... I just back away from that whole thing and say, when I get into areas of speculation like that, 
all I'm going to do is get frustrated because I don't have enough information. I don't have the eyes on the situation that God has, and it's just going to get me angry because I can't answer the question satisfactorily. When that happens, I hope people have a red flag waving in their head saying, why don't you think about the things that you do know about God's kindness and love and mercy and dwell on that rather than letting these questions that you can never answer satisfactorily drive you up the wall. You're just not going to get anywhere and you're just going to get mad. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense, Bill, but man, you know... I think it makes a ton of sense. I even love the illustration you used about a person in a a half-coma state, because God can reach anyone any way he likes. That's right. And, you know, there's testimonies of even things going on where God appears to people in dreams or visions or something like Mm, that. mm -hmm. I'm not going to discount those. I'm not going to necessarily teach them that you should wait for a dream or something like that before you respond to Jesus, but... God is capable of doing so much more than we think. And so I'm I'm optimistic. I'm hoping we see people in heaven and going, glory to God, you know, you just rejected Jesus your whole life, but you must have put your faith in Jesus and here you are. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. <laughs> I'd rather think like that than think, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah has been burning in hell for years now because he never accepted Christ. That's the worst thought. Well, think of what that does to you. It embitters you. It gives an arrogance and a judgmentalism that's really not like Christ at all. Mm-hmm. It it can stain you really bad if you start thinking like that. Mm-hmm. Let, right. let God be the judge. He does just fine with that. Yeah. We don't have to try to do it. Yeah, anymore. God judges, the Holy Spirit convicts, and we rejoice and rejoice. Yeah. Yeah. Fast hour. We're already Not done. Already? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, we're already done. And you've got a, a, a new, exciting guest next hour. I'm not used to this first hour thing. I know. You usually come in at 5. I know. Yeah. And why did you come in today at 4? Because Rose told me to come in at 4. Okay. Well, you always obey Rosie. I do. I know you do. I, I appreciate sure, you yeah. listening to her and obeying her. I sure, I sure miss her. <laughs> Thank yeah, you she, for your wisdom. Yeah. She, she says you don't really listen to her, though. Oh, that's so. not true. Is it? Oh, that's not true. Okay. Yeah. All right, Dr. Mark Musk has been my guest. Ask the Professor. We're going to continue uh, next hour with Dr. Peter Kapsner, and we've got a few surprises for you, and I can hardly wait to share them. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.